This is you, Doc Cohen, Ricky's own Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Backstage Podcast. Often when I speak about the goals of Jewish history in our generation, I speak about decolonizing Jewish identity. And many people often ask, what does that mean? What does it mean to decolonize Jewish identity? In what way are we colonized? Uh, in what way do we need to decolonize? What does decolonization look like? So I think the easiest way to explain what colonization looks like, uh, and it's not unique to us, I think the uh, best metaphor I can offer is imagine you're 12 years old and your home is invaded by a bunch of people from somewhere else. They have guns, they have power, and they impose themselves on you. They decide to rearrange your furniture, they force a vegan diet on you, they force you to listen to their music exclusively, and this goes on for a few years. And finally, let's say five years go by, you've had enough, you decide to fight back, and you successfully push them out of your home. Your home is now free. You and your family still need to have a conversation over where the furniture used to be and whether or not you want to put it back to the way it was, fully or partially whether or not you want to go back to listening to the music you had listened to before the invaders showed up, or if you want to continue to listen to their music. Now, on the one hand, their music is the music of your oppression, and that comes with a lot of baggage. On the other hand, you know, you were 12 when they showed up, now you're 17. A lot of your coming-of-age experiences took place against the backdrop of that soundtrack. So although their music is the music of your oppression at the same time, it triggers a lot of memories for you. It it has an emotional power. It it has emotional relevance to you. That vegan cuisine that they forced on you, your body got used to it, might be good for you, but at the same time you resent the fact that they pushed it on you. So this is kind of the post-colonial conversation that I think all peoples need to have when they experience liberation. And the Jewish people are not only no exception, I think the Jewish people have an even greater need than most peoples to have this conversation because we weren't just oppressed and occupied and colonized within our own land. We were uprooted from our land and we spent many, 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 many centuries in the lands of our enemies where we were persecuted, where a lot of our culture, a lot of our identity changed as a result of that persecution and as a result of our fear of persecution. So what happened with us is we had a very successful anti-colonial struggle against the British Empire when you know, the, the British occupied Palestine and Jews revolted against British rule and it took roughly a decade but we forced the British Empire to leave. According to official British documents, they left Palestine in 1948 as a result of Jewish terrorism. That means we beat them. We forced the British to leave our land. But once they left and we declared independence, what we did was we took their flag down and we put our flag on their system. And we've essentially had the British mandate system but under Jewish control and with Jewish decorations on it. And I think part of the conversation we need to have now is what makes a state Jewish? What does it mean to have a Jewish state? And 
you know, that's, I think, intrinsically connected to this idea of decolonizing our identity. Um, and I can really think of no greater expert to bring on the podcast to, to discuss these ideas than my wife, Sharona Ishid Cohen. Hi, thanks. So, Sharona, you want to give a little bit of background about yourself? Sure. So, I was born and raised in California, and I went to um, UC Berkeley for college. And actually, one of the so one of the most impactful experiences I had at Berkeley uh, with regards to Jewish identity was taking a Chicano studies class, mm-hmm. specifically discussing Chicano by a society and the law. And uh, for all of the assignments, um, because it was the kind of class where you could kind of really delve into your own identity, I really used it as an opportunity to look at Jewish identity and kind of compare it to Chicano society. But that really opened my eyes to a lot of very interesting new ideas that could easily be applied to Jewish identity that various communities in the United States or have already been discussing among their own communities for decades. So anyway, so after Berkeley, I did my master's at UCLA in Israel studies, but with an emphasis on nationalism in general and Zionism more specifically. And when I finished that, I made Aliyah and married you. Well, that was fun, right? That was a good time. Okay. When we talk about Jewish identity being colonized, what does that mean? It means that we no longer ride camels. Really? No. Um, Jewish identity has been, in many ways, this is a strong word, but in many ways it's been bastardized over the centuries. Um, Having not lived in our land, not having uh, been allowed to develop our culture freely, uh, being constantly in fear of how the way we live will offend others and what those consequences could be. Like persecution and fear of persecution. Correct. So because of that, the natural development of our culture has been very stifled. And in some ways, when I say bastardized, I mean not just stifled, but when it does develop, it often develops in a way that wouldn't otherwise be natural to us, but is rather in response to our fear, either real or perceived, of how other, other nations will respond to it. Nations who were essentially living at the mercy of. Right, our host situation. nations, our host nations. Right. Where we're living. Okay, and you would say that this colonization process took place over many centuries. Yeah, of course. I mean, no, definitely it took place over many centuries as, as long as we've been in exile. It became much more prominent during the Haskalah and afterwards, mm-hmm. which ironically is when we were suddenly allowed to enter society and no longer hold up in our ghettos because suddenly that perceived or, or real threat of physical violence turned into this condition instead that we, we could escape that persecution if we change aspects of our culture and our identity and our values. Mm-hmm. So although it's been stifled for centuries, definitely in the last 200 or so years, it's, that process was definitely... It's developed with an illusion of freedom. Like meaning Jewish culture over the last two centuries, maybe in the Western world, we can say it's developed with a, a somewhat of an illusion of freedom that didn't exist I mean, before I think, the Haskalah. Sure, but I think anyone who really is in touch with what's going on can see that there is definitely a, a certain psychosis, especially among Ashkenazi Jews, that th- that, that freedom is being fueled by fear. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to point out that Ashkenazi Jews, for the most part, suffered a lot more trauma in exile than Jews in other diasporas. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. Like Jews who were in Europe, Jews who, you know, the, and the Jews who were in Europe for the most part are the Jews who had fought the Roman Empire 
and were like forcibly uprooted from our land roughly 2,000 years ago in the many revolts that we had launched against ancient Rome. Uh, I think for listeners who aren't familiar with the Haskalah, uh, the Haskalah is the Jewish Enlightenment period. And the way I understand it is the Haskalah was a period in which Jewish leaders in places like Germany or France essentially traded our national identity in exchange for civil rights in the countries they lived in. Like for the first time, they were being offered civil rights, inclusion, a sense of equality in the societies they had lived in and had felt persecuted by or othered by historically. And that just seemed like a worthwhile trade. Certainly for a lot of Jews, yeah. Yeah, and um, before the Haskalah, I think for the most part, Jewish identity uh, could be understood as really... the uh, We were essentially Palestinian refugees. We were basically refugee populations who looked at Palestine as the homeland we had been displaced from. We were living for the most part in isolated communities separate from the host populations, uh, organizing our communal life according to a portable version of the civilization we left behind. Right, and not only that we saw ourselves that way, but also that the host nation saw us that way. And actually there's a term called Halbasian, mm -hmm. which um, is what Europeans referred to Jews as. It means half Asian um, or Semitic. So we were definitely seen as, specifically during the age of Orientalism, we were definitely seen as a Middle Eastern people who was uprooted and living in Europe. That weren't quite belonging. That definitely weren't belonging. Right, okay. And, uh, you know, this touched on another point that I think is probably relevant to a lot of people listening. This question of whether or not Jews constitute a race, a religion, an ethnicity, a culture, a people. And wh what are we? Do we fall into those categories? To what extent is it even relevant? That's a good question. The, true, the, the honest answer is that I think the most important thing that a Jew who is attempting to rediscover or discover his identity could do is to abandon those labels altogether. Why? Because none of them existed before us. Meaning we, whatever it is that we are, that entity existed before there was ever a term or concept of race, religion, uh, even ethnicity, culture, all, all of these terms are created by the West in order to fit different people into boxes, but those boxes don't suit us the way that they don't suit a lot of ancient civilizations because those civilizations constitute something that isn't relevant, that, that, that existed before those concepts were relevant so in the saying, Western world. You're saying we predate those social constructs? Of course. Uh -huh. So would you agree that the closest social construct that we would fit would be like a civilization? Kind of like the Aztecs or the Mayans that have like a spiritual component, a national component, a legal component, a, a territorial component, but are much more than the sum of those parts. Yes, I, 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 would, say, I would say that with a caveat. Mm -hmm. I think that we definitely, I mean, we do definitely constitute a civilization, but our civilization is also unique in that we have certain features that other ancient civilizations didn't necessarily have, specifically when it comes to features of nationalism. Okay, go on. Nationalism, it, certainly modern nationalism, comes with this certain sense of unity among people who might never even meet each other because they constitute the same nation. Mm -hmm. um, 
which doesn't necessarily exist, which you don't necessarily see in other ancient civilizations. Wait, that we do have that sense That we do and we did thousands of years ago as well. Meaning someone from the tribe of Judah would feel a sense of uh, unity and connection with someone from the tribe of Don, even if they never crossed paths in their lives, mm-hmm. because they're part of the same nation. Whereas if you look at other ancient civilizations, it's not necessarily the case. It's definitely a civilization, but there are elements that make us also distinct from, from other civilizations, just like I'm sure all civilizations have elements that make them distinct. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's connected to having like a primordialist understanding of national identity? Primordialism is very complicated. Certainly today we have a primordialist sense of national identity. I think that, I don't want to get into this too much, but it seems to me that modern nationalist scholars uh, have a very hard time dealing with ancient Hebrew society and figuring out how they fit into their modern nationalist theories. Because there is some element of primordial nationalism, there's something there that makes it very difficult to fit into modern nationalist theory. Can you expand then what modern nationalist theory is? Sure. So... The Gadol. In general? (laughs) Generally. Every scholar has something different to say, but in general, modern nationalist theory is the idea that nations and nationalism are a modern phenomenon as a result of, you know, again, each scholar has something different to say. One might say that it's a result of technology, one might say it's a result of of, um, like industrialization of uh, yeah of Protestantism. There, there's there's all sorts of different theories, but that it's it's, it's socially primarily constructed. it's socially constructed primarily in the modern era, mm-hmm. and because of the modern era. Whereas you know the ancient Hebrew belief is that we essentially all share a soul that like there is like a, a giant spiritual organism called Israel that shines into this world through millions of bodies in space and time called Jews, and that we're essentially all soulmates. Okay, that's different. I from, agree with that. That's true. Yeah, and, and that's obviously <laughs> radically different from the modern academic understanding of national identity. Sure. Yeah, assuming that this giant soul is what you would define uh, is that's the identity is of expressed Israel. in this world as a nation. Then yes, then right as, as a collection of let's say twelve Hebrew tribes that were slaves in Egypt right. and you know had an experience of liberation and a, and a journey to a homeland the homeland that their ancestors had been in before being enslaved in Egypt, and then creating a civilization in that land mm-hmm. okay, until it was destroyed by foreigners mm-hmm. who essentially came and, and conquered and crushed us. And, and I think a lot of Israelis and, and Jews all over the world really do see the modern return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel and the achievement of independence as correcting that injustice. I mean, we've been telling ourselves a story for thousands of years. And that story is that we are an ancient people from a very specific geographic location that had a rich civilization that was unjustly displaced against our will and somehow managed to maintain our identity in the diaspora. Like, we essentially survived. Like sort we, of maintain our identity. Well, we kept a lot of our identity intact. Mm-hmm. The truth is, I think we, we maintained an Or at least maintained a memory of our identity. So that okay. Some sense, some semblance. Right, right. But, but an impressive amount uh-huh. of our identity. Right. I think, I think in, um, we, it's impressive the extent to which we did maintain Certainly our identity. Certainly no other peoples who have ever been in a position like ours have maintained an identity. Right, like I don't know where the Moabites are today. Right. But we maintained our identity enough to be able to return home and reunite in the land we were displaced from nearly 2,000 years later, which is unheard of. of. 
And, and, I, and I think it's confusing because I think a lot of, I mean, first of all, the Zionist movement, which actually achieved this homecoming, used a lot of colonialist tools. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very easy to look at the Zionist movement, you know, especially if you isolate it historically and you don't really have a concept of Jewish history and Jewish identity and the story we've been telling ourselves for thousands of years. It just looks as if there was this kind of colonial movement called Zionism that brought a bunch of people from Europe to the Middle East right. and created some kind of settler society. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the way a lot of people in the world are looking at it today. Um, but I, and, and you know, I think we can acknowledge the colonial tools used by the Zionist movement, but I think that at the same time, we have to recognize that Jews all over the world, whether in Morocco, whether in Poland, whether in Lithuania, wherever, had for generation after generation after generation been telling ourselves that we are going back to this land we were displaced from. In fact, it, I think it was very much the theme of Jewish history, this idea that we were displaced and we're going back every wedding, every Brit Milah, every Pesach Seder, Pesach Seder right, uh, every Yom Kippur, and, and even like the fast days, when you look at the fact that, like, for example, on the 17th day of the month of Tammuz, Jews all over the world, generation after generation after generation, would fast and mourn on the day that the Roman Empire broke through the walls of Jerusalem, three weeks before destroying the city, three weeks before essentially destroying our national framework. And we, of course, fast on that day even more intensely, like that's even more of an intense day of mourning, the the ninth of Av, when, when finally they did destroy the temple and they did uproot us. I mean, just the fact, I, I don't know of another people that, you know, at the wedding ceremony, you know, there's a declaration that as much as I care about this woman, I care more about a return to Jerusalem. Or a, a people that, you know, fasts for century after century after century uh, to mourn the destruction of their city. And that's something that has very much characterized our history. And I think part of the part of our colonization is at a certain point in history, this kind of portable version of our culture that maintained us in the diaspora during the Haskalah when uh, so many Jewish leaders traded our identity in exchange for civil rights in Western Europe, that identity became rebranded as a religion called Judaism. That's kind of like the birth of Judaism in many ways. I don't know if you've heard of the Great Sanhedrin. Most people haven't. In France. In France. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I happen to have heard of it. I might have told you. No, no, no. I knew. No, but they they spoke to Napoleon. Napoleon asked them, "Are you yes, Frenchmen?" No, or so, are you so Napoleon, he he was actually the first to offer emancipation to the Jews, and he said, "Create a Sanhedrin, and if you declare that you're just a religion, mm-hmm. and that you have no loyalty to returning to the land of Israel or to you know your Jewish brethren in other countries, then you'll be fully emancipated." And you'll be Frenchmen. Yeah, and unfortunately, you know, some of the greatest rabbis uh, in France got together and, and made the Sanhedrin and made this declaration. They went further than that. They said to Napoleon, we're such Frenchmen that when we go to England and stay amongst the Jews, we feel like we're among strangers. Mm-hmm. Like, they're not our people. Right. You know, there's a story I used to tell a lot when I would teach this topic. You know, during World War One, there's kind of like a famous story that some Jews like to talk about where soldiers in the German army and soldiers in the British army during a ceasefire got together and formed a minyan, uh, like a quorum of 
at least ten men in order to do mincha, afternoon tefillah. And, and I'm saying tefillah intentionally, by the way, and I think this is relevant to this concept of colonization, because unfortunately um, our concept of tefillah had been confused with a Christian concept of prayer. Just like I would argue that our concept of Hashem, you know, this timeless ultimate reality without end that creates all and sustains all, empowers all, and loves all, became confused with the Western concept of God. Or um, even when, when somebody joins the children of Israel, when like an outsider becomes an insider, what we call in Hebrew diur, uh, often in English people say conversion. Somebody's converting to Judaism. Whereas the reality is they're naturalizing. They're becoming part of this civilization. They're actually joining this ancient tribalist community. Uh, this identity, this ancient identity, and that's not converting to a religion. You know, it, it's interesting that for somebody to be a Christian, they have to believe in something, or else they're not really a Christian. To be a Muslim, you have to believe in something, or else you're not a Muslim. But to be a Jew, according to the Jewish understanding of what it means to be a Jew, you really don't have to believe in anything. Right, yeah, I would actually refer this point to a nationalist scholar called, uh, named Aviel Roshwald. Mm -hmm. He's a primordialist national scholar, and he says something very interesting that I really relate to, which is that when someone joins the Jewish people through Giyur... Naturalization. Yeah, naturalization. Uh, they're definitely not just joining a religion, and they're not even just joining a civilization. They are, with all intents and purposes, physically changing their ethnicity. They're actually mm. physically becoming a child of our forefather and foremother, Abraham and Sarah, which mm. is why when someone joins the Jewish people, they become son of or daughter of Abraham and Sarah. Right, like called up to the Torah, he is now Ploni ben Avraham. Right, and one of the most astounding proofs of the, of the extent to which we understand this to be the case mm -hmm. is that if a mother and her son both join the Jewish people through Giyur, they are legally, according to our tradition, allowed to marry each other because they're considered no longer mother and son. They're both just the children of our forefathers and foremothers, so much so that physically... Physically, they can marry each other. Although we don't recommend it. Well, yeah, don't do it. <laughs> but, but, but the fact that that's, that that's even allowed is, right. it, it really says something very strong about how we understand uh -huh. Giyur. Right, and in Kabbalistic terms, we would say that when a, a person finishes his Giyur process, he actually receives a piece of that collective soul that we all share. Like right. that's, that's actually the transformation that takes place. He's now infused with a piece of that collective soul that we call Knesset Yisrael. So examples of like, what, what is decolonization? Uh, we discuss this a lot, I think. Uh, I mean, for me, part of it is really indigenizing into the Middle East and no longer feeling this kind of inferiority complex to Western civilization. It, you made a joke earlier, like a caricature of this decolonization discourse is we're going to ride camels. Right, that's usually the question I get asked. Uh -huh. So you, you want us to just go back to all riding camels. And mm -hmm. people, people seem serious with that. <laughs> uh -huh. but, but in reality, I think it means something much deeper. Like just for example, my name is Yudaha Kohen. You're my wife, but you're not Sharona HaKohen. No. You're Sharona Eshet Kohen. Right. So maybe we should talk about that because I think most people understand names as you have a private name followed by a family name. And a husband and wife, in most cases, share a family name. 
I think most people who hear Eshet Kohen, especially especially in the English-speaking world, probably assume that your maiden name was Eshet, <laughs> and now you're just hyphenating and, and you're like Eshet HaKohen. Right, people in Israel definitely don't assume that. No, so Eshet Kohen means wife of Kohen. The wife of the Kohen. Yeah. Right, whereas HaKohen is the Kohen. Correct. Which is, which is like the sub-tribe I come from. So these kind of like Western name structures of having a private name followed by a family name are relatively new in history and certainly not our people's authentic name structure. Correct. So our authentic name structure is basically, it's a description of mm-hmm. who we are. Okay. Um, so that could be something like Hakohen, which describes your tribe, or, or Halevi, describes your tribe or your sub-tribe. It could be Haglili or Yerushalmi, right. which being describes from Yerushalayim, being where from you're from. Right. right, and it could be Melamed, like a, if you're a teacher. Mm-hmm. And those name structures were fluid, meaning that if someone grew up in Jerusalem, their last they, they wouldn't be called Hey Yerushalmi in Jerusalem because no. that wouldn't make any sense. Everyone's Yerushalmi, right? But if they grew up in Jerusalem and they moved to Haifa, then they might be known there as Yerushalmi, right? Reuven Yerushalmi, mm-hmm. Yerushalmi. Mm-hmm. So for the most part, people it would be more like a description. Right, it would describe... It would, like it would either where you're from or what you right. do or what tribe you're from. So in Europe, in the late 18th century, starting mm-hmm. in the late 18th century, again, the rise of modern nationalism and suddenly governments needing the ability to uh, tax and educate and draft people into the army, they needed a, a much more clear way of keeping track of who was in their, in their country and who wasn't. So they began forcing communities, not just Jews, but all sorts of different ethnic communities to take on permanent last names so that they could be registered um, in different registries. And Jews were actually, interestingly, some of the communities that held out the longest. Um, against these names. Yeah, they, they fought against it the longest until I think the last one was in the mid-1800s, the, mm-hmm. the last Jewish community that took on these name structures. And basically what they did is they took whatever descriptive name they had at the time and kind of just uh, made, made it son of that, right? Yeah. Or like, Right, that was also an, an authentic Hebrew name structure, like son of, like right, Ben right. Avraham or Ben Yaakov. Or, so right, they took so, that. so they would just take Jacob's that. Jacobson right, so Ben Yaakov. They just picked the name that had something to do with what they would have been described as anyway and uh-huh. made that their permanent name. So a lot of name, a lot of people from my sub-tribe became like Katz. Katz, Khan, Khan. Right. My family was Katz until... In Russia, the Tsar was forcibly drafting Jews into the army for 25 years, what we call Cantonists. And uh, the way out of that was if a family had only one son. So what a lot of families did, including mine, was they would start giving each son a different family name so that the authorities would assume each one is uh, the only son of his family and therefore exempt from this like 25-year Russian military service that often took away all semblance of Jewish identity. Like mm-hmm. being in the Russian army for over two decades can have that effect. Right. So you're now Eshet Kohen, meaning when you moved to this country, you were Batefrain. Right, so so when I made Aliyah, I had the opportunity to pick a name, to mm-hmm. Hebraize my name, but right. um, usually when people Hebraize their name, they go from Rebecca to Rivka. Mm-hmm. Um, I chose to really Hebraize my name, and I changed my last name to Batefrain. So you changed not only your family name from like an American sounding family name to a Hebrew version of it, you actually changed the structure of your name. Right, I changed the structure of my name to Bat Ephraim because my father's name is Ephraim. Mm-hmm. So I became daughter of Ephraim, Sharona daughter of Ephraim. 
And then when I got married, the truth is I could have kept Bat Ephraim. That was that's still true, mm-hmm. but but you loved me enough to make <laughs> well, me it, part it of your identity. It might it might have become a stronger aspect of my identity. And and again, an aspect of our authentic name structure is its fluidity. Mm-hmm. And what is the strongest identifying feature of you is most likely going to be what you're going to be called by. So um, yeah, so I changed to Ashkelon. Mm-hmm. So you very much define yourself as my wife. Uh, certainly. Okay. Maybe not the sum total, but sure. And also the uh, the ring I put on your finger when I took you as a wife still is on that finger I put it on, which is very different than most Jewish women today. Right. So for whatever reason, somehow growing up, I knew that at a Jewish wedding, uh, the man under the chuppah puts the ring on the woman's right pointer finger. But... I don't think I ever saw anyone keep the ring there. And in fact, most of the time, the ring didn't even fit. They could only push it on a, a little bit. And then immediately, the woman would move it to her left ring finger. And the ring had been created to fit that finger. Um, like, the ring always looked awkward when it was, like, partway onto the pointer finger. Like, during the wedding ceremony. During the ceremony. Like, it was, it's silly. Like, um, so I was curious. But I'd never seen anyone actually leave it on their pointer finger. So I was curious, before I give you the ring size... If that was part, if that was part of Jewish tradition or not, that like it's put on one finger and then it's switched, or if it's if that's just because everyone wears the ring on that finger. So I researched it, I looked into it, and I found that the reason why Jews put the ring on the right pointer finger is because according to our tradition, that is the closest finger to the heart, or I guess it's the most direct route to the heart. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, literally on the other hand. Uh, the left ring finger is considered in Christian tradition to be the closest finger to the heart. So um, that was my answer. And when I asked you to order the ring, I I gave you the size of my right pointer finger, which is where I still wear it today. Now, I do want to say that, well, first of all, so the reason why women obviously change it is because they've been living in Christian society for centuries and they want to be identified as married and if they want to be identified as married then they have to wear their finger where christian society identifies um, a, married woman's ring. a married woman's ring right otherwise no one will know but actually in israel there is an interesting phenomenon that among specifically communities where the married women cover their hair you'll find that in general most women wear it on whatever finger is comfortable for them there's mm. no there's no set ring finger in in israeli society in traditional israeli society in, in society where women cover specifically i think where women cover their hair mm-hmm. because that's the real identifying feature of a married woman for jewish society mm-hmm. a woman's it's covering her hair today. or not right I so mean, once upon a time even single women covered their hair Okay, true, and, and in some communities, some still do. But for the most part, in, in Israeli society today, if a woman is covering her hair, you can assume she's probably married. Mm-hmm. She's covering it in a real way. And but in the more westernized sectors of Israeli society, you probably women still have the finger on the Christian ring finger. It might be less likely than in, in the diaspora, but mm-hmm. it's, it's definitely more likely than mm-hmm. traditional society. Okay, so you wear your ring on your right pointer finger to this day Correct. because you are decolonizing. Yeah, I mean, no. that's an act of decolonization. Yeah, so all of these, these, you know, the name change and the ring finger, these are definitely important individual acts of decolonization for me. And, you know, they serve also as good conversational starters and have educational value. But they're definitely superficial acts of, of decolonization. I think decolonization goes much deeper um, in terms of, like, really, there's a need to decolonize our worldview and our value system, which I'm sure you must have talked about in previous podcasts. Not so sure. 
Okay. So I think those deeper aspects of decolonization are also really important and also more large-scale acts of decolonization on, on a societal level, economic level, political level. But yeah, for, I mean, for me as an individual, it's been very meaningful for, to me to make the, these small changes that I'm very aware of and conscious of and, and change the way that I understand my own identity. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that decolonization is also very much an aspect of chuva. You know, like we're heading into the month of Elul, so, and you know, the month of Elul in Hebrew culture is very much associated with this idea of tshuva, of return, of coming back to ourselves, coming back to our land. What the Zionist movement did uh, about a hundred years ago was very much an act of tshuva, was coming back to our land, coming back to our language, coming back to many aspects of our identity. But I think now that we're in our land, now that uh, Israel speaks our language, now that we have political independence, uh, we have to go deeper, understand you know, what makes a state Jewish, what do minority rights look like in a Jewish state, what does a health care system look like in a Jewish state, what does affordable housing look like in a Jewish state, you know, what does uh, an economic system, like you said, look like in a Jewish state. For example, Shemitah. You know, yeah. We have uh, every seven years is the Shemitah year, and Israel observes it, but really only in regards to produce. Why don't we observe Shemitah on the socioeconomic level? Why don't we abolish people's debts in the seventh year? So I think these are conversations that need to take place in terms of how is a Hebrew society structured? Right, and that exists on all levels, from the individual community base all the way to the national. Right, right. And, and also the message we have for the world. Because, right. you know, we've come back to life after 2,000 years, I believe, in order to offer something new to the world every time the Jewish people have had independence in our own land. We've had a positive impact on human civilization, and I really do believe that we came back this time in order to do that again. And it's difficult to have a positive impact on human civilization when instead of unpacking our own culture, we're so busy trying to mimic the cultures of others. Right. So, yeah, I think that in terms of just us being able to succeed at fulfilling our mission and the reason we came back to life from a historical perspective I think we need to enter into this post-colonial conversation and really unpack what it means for a state to be Jewish in the 21st century or what Hebrew civilization looks like when you rebuild it in the 21st century after 2,000 years of absence. So anyway, Sharona Eshet Kohen, I want to thank you for joining me. I know you're a very busy woman. I know you have a lot going on. I look forward to eating the sushi dinner that you prepared tonight. Thanks. I'm excited for the sushi too. Yeah, okay. This is Yudak Kohen, Brit Chazan, Vision Magazine. Please remember to leave us a five-star review on all of the relevant platforms. You can check out our show notes at visionmag.org backslash the next stage eight.